0: Doubtedly, this changes the landscape in lacrosse because it gets people moving it gets people thinking about what's possible here.
1: To BizCast Greater Lacrosse, a weekly podcast from Biz News. We bring you news from the business community. I am your host and founder, Vicky Marcus, and joining me today is Jason Gilman. You own your own company. You are the principal of JBG Planning. And we're gonna be talking a lot, though, about your role as project manager for River Point District, which some oldies like me still refer to or think of as the mobile oil site. But River Point District certainly sounds much much nicer. There's a lot of history behind this property. And I, I don't want to jump quick to the most commonly asked question of what took so long. I, I would love it if you could say, how did the interest in this property start and what has been that progression to where we are today?
0: Sure. Thank you, Vicki. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, you know, I think one thing that most citizens can look at is, you know, the waterfronts of big cities were predominantly industrial over time. And this is no exception. Of course, ExxonMobil had a big tank farm on this site, but there were also other industrial uses that were adjacent to that. And with industrial uses, you have inadvertent pollution that takes place. You know, uh, in this case, we had some uh, leaking, um, you know, of petrol. Petroleum products and some other things that needed cleaning up. But we also had uh, changing land uses over time. You know, the uh, La Crosse's historic downtown and all of the investment that was taking place around it uh, really changed sort of the nature of that older industrial landscape to something that was much more uh, urban and. Partly residential and and then mixes of commercial uses and things like that. So uh, this dates back to you know Mayor Zilke and and the uh, planning director at the time uh, Larry Kirch, looking at this site and saying you know there's a huge opportunity cost to just letting it stay the way it is, and let's get after it and figure out what what this could mean to the city because it's also a very big piece of land. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 70 acres total. 28 is about the net developable acreage, 28 acres. But if you would lay 28 acres over downtown La Crosse, that's an enormous footprint. Mm -hmm. You know, the the average city block is maybe 2.2 or something like that. So it gives you a sense of scale. It's a, it's a big, big piece of land. Um, but it started with Mayor Zilke and, and uh, the planning director, Larry Kirch. I think they were looking at, you know, how, how do we negotiate acquisitions over time, uh, use some of the city's tools to get this site cleaned up and ready for redevelopment. And then they went through that big public engagement process of the design charrette. And of course that's critical because it's a centrally located piece of property. The, The advocacy of the citizens in the city to do something with it was really important and that set the stage for where we are today. Uh, so that design charrette and all the work that went into engaging stakeholders uh, created sort of a plan for the future for the site. And, uh, and then when I was the planning director, uh, starting about eight years ago, This was a priority to keep the you know take the ball and keep running with it and and so the next step was really to refine the master plan into into a formal zoning document that would be the legal basis for land use and we created the plan development district master plan uh, hired a master developer uh, because uh, as you know the economy and markets and construction inflation and interest rates and all these things are. Uh, it, it's very difficult for cities to figure out what is the market going to look like now, five years from now, 10 years from now, we really need the development community as a partner. So we got a master developer and, and that network involved and, and, uh, and then, uh, And then after uh, uh, during uh, Andrea Train's uh, directorship, she uh, worked on getting the site filled, getting the engineering uh, contract done with the city engineering department and uh, getting the first phase of infrastructure built. And now we are right on the cusp of actually seeing major changes, which will be the public and private investment on the site.
1: I'm going to add another layer to that history through a couple of questions here. So a a lot of something I didn't realize is this wasn't just a single owned piece of property. There were many people that needed to get bought out, if you will. Can you explain kind of what it looks like to assemble that land?
0: Well, I think it's individual negotiations that have to take place. Um, Cities legally can't use eminent domain to to acquire property for redevelopment. In other words, we can't take it from one for-profit entity and transfer it to another for-profit entity. There are some major, uh, there's major case law in the United States uh, that uh, restricts cities from doing that. Cities can use eminent domain for critical public infrastructure, significant public purpose, you know, or there's a, a like a road right of way or that sort of thing. So most of these negotiations were just that they were individual negotiations that take, take a long time, you know, to, to settle. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, the laws have changed about eminent domain over time, too. So that's another you know variable in the, in the whole thing, because we're talking about four decades of, of work. Uh, but along with that, when you're negotiating, you're also trying to figure out, well, what are we going to arrive at in terms of a cost to acquire? Where is the money coming from? Are there grant monies involved? What are the strings attached to the grant money? So it gets pretty complex, and that's one of the reasons it just takes a long time.
1: And in the meantime, the pain point and the the risk, if you will, is you're purchasing privately owned property that's paying taxes in, and so at some point you say, "This is we have to commit to this, right? There's no going back because we're essentially losing tax base, knowing that it has greater value by." putting this back into production that's just the financial side obviously there's the community development side etc and so you know this is all happening over decades we'll just say there's the cleanup of the property can you talk about what gets put into cleaning up a property like that
0: yeah there's uh, well there there are um Federal and state guidance on what needs to be cleaned up or what can be cost-effectively cleaned up. There are certain things that are not cost-effective. Like, for instance, it's not uncommon to have petroleum and soil and groundwater in cities. Um, but there are other things, uh, and I'm not—I I don't want to guess what the list was on this site because I don't have that document in front of me. But uh, if you—if you would look at any. Major metropolitan site in an old industrial type of setting, you might have things like industrial solvents or you might have, you know, uh, uh, um, PCBs or other things that might have, you know, uh, been involved on a site. And, and a lot of times that's the kind of stuff that this the. the Uh, there's a cost-effective way of getting rid of it and treating the soil and getting the the bad soil out and good soil put back in. So I think that's basically what the city did years ago is they got guidance from state and federal sources as to what needed to be cleaned up. Uh, They went through that phase one and phase two environmental analysis to figure out what we were dealing with. So there was a consultant involved that did soil borings to figure that out. And then we looked at what are the best financial strategies to get the getting the cleanup done. But I think you know you you're, you made a good point, and that is that from a policy perspective, cities have to decide at some point: is it worth it to do all of this? Mm-hmm. And you know what what does twenty eight acres in the heart of our city? What's the potential of that? And then what's the opportunity cost of not doing anything? You know, how long does it sit empty? So that that's a big policy decision that, you know, the leaders need to make.
1: And there's, Benefits. I, I know this from working with a north side business that has contaminated land of the like it has to be unused for a certain time period to qualify for certain grants. And so where I'm going with this is oftentimes when there's contaminated land, it is financially not viable for a private business or developer or property owner to do that work because the city qualifies for certain funding. Correct.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wh- when you think of a typical development, there is this bundle of development costs that kind of come with the site. On the lowest end, it might be development that they call shovel-ready, mm-hmm. where, where you actually have access to utilities and the soil is good and you don't have any unknowns you know, underground and that sort of thing. Uh, but on the urban side of things, oftentimes you're dealing with demolition costs, uh, you know, cleaning something up that, uh, you know, whether it's an old asphalt parking lot or pollution or assembling land and the cost of just uh, getting all of that done, getting the zoning done. So there can be a big bundle of development costs in an urban site. And cities are usually in a better place to handle that because the developer has to handle... All of the other stuff—the construction, inflation, supply chain issues, timing, uh, the market—you know, all of that—and uh, so it, 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 a lot of times you'll see on these urban sites the a true public-private partnership type of uh, of uh, a scenario unfold because of that.
1: So, in the in the meantime between acquiring all of this land and the, and the here and now. The RDA was created. Can you explain the RDA, the purpose that it has?
0: Yeah, the, R, the Redevelopment Authority or RDA, um, and there's also something called a CDA or a Community Development Authority that the statute allows for. Uh, CDAs tend to be a little bit more housing focused. RDAs tend to be a little bit more just general redevelopment focused where you have mixed use or other you know things going on. But uh, the, the city of La Crosse had a redevelopment authority long before River Point District. There were a number of redevelopment areas in the city, like the area that LHI and the, and the Weber Group uh, invested in. But they're, they're enabled by state statute. Uh, it's an independent corporate body that the city can put in place to help streamline the very difficult and complex uh, nature of urban redevelopment. So they uh, they tend to be a, a group of people that are uh, appointed by a mayor or the council, uh, and then they have uh, they in order for them to act within a city, they they have to have a resolution that identifies. That the area that they're working in complies with the state's definition of a redevelopment area, and that's usually things like blight and vacancies and you know all of the definitions of blight, which is pretty broad. And then they have to have a redevelopment plan in place for them to act. Uh, so all of those are sort of prerequisites for an RDA to act, um, and then they have certain powers. They can borrow money um, outside of the realm of city borrowed money. In other words, their their borrowing doesn't uh, it doesn't affect the city's bond rating, for instance, because the city has to borrow its own money for you know, the rest of the city and all the infrastructure and capital improvements and things that that it does every year, RDAs are kind of independent. So they they really try to be sort of self-sufficient. But most of the time, they are given some sort of asset by the city to start with so that they have something to work with. And, And sometimes that asset is land, and that is the case of River Point District. They were actually transferred the land. But sometimes they're also given financial resources like tax incremental financing uh, funding uh, or the the proceeds from land sales that they can then use to affect the redevelopment.
1: So it's really an economic development tool, if you will, for the city, but it allows them to function without all of the governance, if you will, the committees and all of that infrastructure of the city. Its sole purpose is to develop... Some of these properties. Right. And then it almost creates, depending on the, the structure, like a revolving loan fund, right? So they can sell a piece of property, which creates money to then go and develop another property that they have been given. I think, is it Fifth Ward and the old train plant seven? Isn't that an RDA project as well? I think. Yeah,
0: I believe that was a redevelopment area that the RDA was operating in. And, yeah. And the, the revolving loan fund idea is actually one. That is a tool that RDAs frequently use um, because they're transferring, you know, gains from one project mm-hmm. on to another. Um, it, we shouldn't confuse the issue of creating an RDA with going through the required and proper uh, process that the city still has to do. Mm-hmm. So RDAs can't do, uh, they, they can't um, do zoning for instance a developer still has to go through the planning commission and council and all the hearings and all of that stuff for zoning and that's why the pdd was created was to get that taken care of so rda is just because they're created they don't um sort of uh um replace yeah they don't replace the, the standard yeah. things that cities have to do by statute right
1: so we've gotten to the point so andrea had the project of filling we all watched the the level of dirt rise and then we knew we had heard it needed to sit for a year but that's still pretty high property or pretty tall property so what's happening back there i saw a post saying hey things are starting and that was just this week i think it was so what's happening in that property now
0: yeah well right now there is a um a uh, uh contractor team that is actually working on the site to get the first phase of infrastructure built. And that first phase of infrastructure includes a large underground uh, stormwater facility that basically cleans the urban water before it gets discharged into the, the Black River uh and and of course that whole system is very heavily reviewed and and uh you know it's a, a state approval type of process and then uh once that facility is built then we're talking about the roads you know the things that you'll see on the surface and of course the road system uh the first phase is is Riverbend Drive which is the main road that goes from the uh, uh, signal lighted intersection that goes into Festival Foods in mm-hmm. Copeland—it'll actually be that'll be the intersection of the new road, and that extends all the way through the site over to Causeway Boulevard. Uh, that becomes sort of the main spine of infrastructure, if you will. And then there's a there's a impending phase three. So it's uh, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but there's there was a phase one that really had to do with the fill filling of the mm-hmm. site. Phase two is the main road going through at the storm sewer facility. Phase three is sort of the internal roads or local roads, and those are all expected to get built in 2024 and 2025. Uh, but that's what you see out there today is the cranes and the contractors actually working on that first phase of infrastructure or second phase.
1: And there's a map out there of interested parties in certain parcels. Can you explain how that is coming about?
0: Yeah, so one of the tools redevelopment authorities use is a option agreement. and the option basically gives developers the confidence that they can invest in architectural plans to move their project forward, knowing that at the end of those plans they can have they there's a parcel they can buy from the RDA. Uh, so there are currently I think five option agreements on the land um, and those include a mix of both local developer teams or investor teams and some from outside of the area uh, for instance, uh, the F Street group out of Milwaukee is one of the option holders uh, Merge development is another one uh, they're they're a national company that has done a lot of senior housing projects and things. Uh, MSP Real Estate is another one, Uh, Red Earth LLC is another one, and Premier Hotel Group is another one that has options. And each one of these options has, uh, along with it, some architectural renderings or concept drawings that they submitted to the RDA so you can kind of get a sense of what they are looking at building. Most everything that you'll see in this development is multi-story mixed use because of the the economics of developing in an urban area, you wouldn't typically see, like, a big surface parking lot and a single-story type of building. You're going to see big multi-story buildings. Most of them are five stories above podium or six stories tall. Some of them might be four or five stories. And then you'll see parking in the building on the first floor, possibly commercial, retail, office, and then residential up above That's the nature of most of the buildings on the site.
1: I think of options as almost like earnest money, right? So you put the money down because you want to hold the property, but you have a lot of work to do to see if it's actually a viable business concept, if the numbers are going to work. And it sounds like even from the beginning to even get the options approved, these companies have already invested probably pretty heavily in an architectural rendering of what this property would look like. And I'm I'm, I'm looking to, for you to correct me if any of this is wrong, but they present that I assume to the RDA and the RDA says this looks good or can you, they provide some feedback? Is that what the process looks like?
0: Yeah, but I think to the... Um, credit of the RDA, they don't do a lot of subjective review. They want to know that the, the plans are compliant with the plan development district master plan, which is really the design standards for the development and the land use standards for the development. So as long as they know that they're complying with those things, it takes a lot of that subjective review off the table, which is really great for the developers too, because then they don't get put into kind of a gauntlet or guessing game. You know, what are the what is the city going to want? What you know, and uh, um, so even though they're presenting conceptual drawings to the RDA, most of the time, as long as it complies with the PDD document it's good to go. Um, There might be some unique aspects of the development that the developer wants to communicate to the RDA, and they might have a dialogue about that. Uh, But but it's a pretty streamlined process.
1: That also explains why a bunch of single-family homes don't financially make sense for that property.
0: Right, because you you know, in a typical development pro forma, I mean a developer has the expectation of a certain internal rate of return, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, based on the time value of money. So they they have to look at how much is this costing me in terms of real estate and actual development costs? And then can I with the with the net operating income from rent or sale of property, am I is it working? You know, are the investors interested in it? And in urban areas, you need density mm-hmm. for that to work. And especially today with construction, inflation at record highs and, you know,
1: Yeah, that's the piece that a lot of people, I think, don't understand is while that piece of property sits, there's a cost to that developer because those option agreements expire, right? So they're doing all of this research in the background, trying to make the numbers fit and um, seeing what they can deliver on and where there's a gap and how they fill that gap in financing. But in the meantime, the longer the clock ticks, the more money the more cost they're having of extending that option—is that how that works?
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And um, the other the other thing is is, is is as long as the clock is running, there's volatility too because mm. we don't know what interest rates are going to do or supply chain mm-hmm. issues or construction inflation or, you know, I I think a few years ago there was concern about the cost of drywall because of the the huge fires that were going on out in California and stuff and and hurricane damage.
1: Hurricanes, yeah.
0: So there's volatility in cost with delay. And um, so most of the, you're absolutely right, the option agreements have a certain time they can they can ask for an extension that is at the RDA's discretion to grant that. and uh, But that gives them the confidence to know that if they keep, you know, with the project and getting their design done, getting their pro forma done, that they have a parcel to buy at the end of that option.
1: Yeah, because the worst thing that could happen is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and having it slip out from underneath them. Right. So... Talk about what the vision is. What type of you talk about it being multi-use, but what does that look like?
0: Yeah, so this goes back to the design charrette that was done decades ago, and what the public really wanted out of the site. And there, were, there were certain things that I think were um, not desirable, and that, and and some of the things I've heard from, and I remember from back then was that the city really didn't want to create like an extension of the downtown that would become kind of a new novelty downtown that would compete with historic downtown La Crosse. They, they felt that that would be a mistake that it would dilute the great retail landscape that we have in downtown La Crosse. Uh, they also didn't, I think they were shying away from things like big box retail, you know, because there was always speculation about oh, could a Costco move in here or, you know, that kind of stuff. And of course that, That can be very concerning to downtown retailers, too, because there's, you know, price competition on certain goods, even though the large majority of, you know, urban and downtown types of businesses usually sell things that are pretty unique. Mm -hmm. But uh, so it was the citizens that really said, you know, this should be an urban neighborhood, you know, that, that we're bookmarking or bookending downtown La Crosse with a lot of great, places to live and recreation. And so the mixed use is really sort of multifold. It's housing, uh neighborhood services. So not not big format retail, but retail and services that would be more at the neighborhood scale that would serve the development and the and the immediate surrounding area. And then there were some sites in the master plan that showed office use and things like lodging or hotels but office use of course has really
1: Mm, changed changed. since
0: the pandemic so again we're that's why it's so important for us to have these public private partnerships with the development community to because it it helps us hedge against risk Mm -hmm. we we don't really want to build custom buildings and then have to convert them at some point because the market has completely shifted. Mm-hmm. So that great communication we have with the development community allows us to mitigate risk to a certain extent. Yeah.
1: Are you seeing that there will be some, I'll just call them like destination businesses in there, or is this really meant to just com- the businesses that will be in there, create a sense of community? I mean, are we talking coffee shops? Are we talking a high end restaurant in there that's going to draw people from throughout the city or both?
0: I think it could be both, but it's it's really still a work in progress. Sure. There's design develop the design development that goes on during what while an option agreement is in place, has the developer typically imagining what could happen in those buildings and then reaching out to potential tenants or investors. And those details are not with us yet you know, mm-hmm. I think they're they're yet to come but my best guess at it is that they will probably be businesses that will enhance and complement the downtown and immediate neighborhood sure um and i i often think of like downtown lacrosse as sort of an ecosystem where you want to have industry clusters or synergy between uses or ancillary Mm -hmm. uses that that actually have a positive impact. And that might be another way to look at this, is this is opportunistic in that sense that there could be uses that um, are just make downtown even more uh, Mm -hmm. appealing.
1: Right. And if anything, you're adding a huge population really close to downtown. So they may walk to downtown to go to restaurants to shop. And so it's very complimentary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, I I don't know what the complete end demographic will be, but, you know, if you look at the typical occupancy of uh, apartments, you know, it can be anywhere from 1.2 to 1 to 2.1 people per household. And I think the first group of options is almost 500 units of housing. So you're talking about, almost 2,000 people, you know, that uh, just with the first phase. So that that's significant.
1: You know, the we, we're talking a lot about the buildings, but what was it? 70 acres and 28 are developable. So what's going to happen with that other land?
0: 42. Yeah. Yes. So the other 42 is in, inhibited by um, floodplain, floodway. You know, floodway is where you have moving water during a flood. It's, it's, it's highly regulated. You know, it's not something that you want to, because if you start filling or, or, uh, doing things in a flood way, it can have downstream impact. It can have, you know, mm-hmm. it requires a much higher level of engineering and resiliency. And generally, it's, it's a regulated area anyway. Right. So you have floodway, you have wetlands, or you have hydric soils, which are, um, you know, not, necessarily suitable for development Mm -hmm. but wetlands play a really important role in the environment too and uh and then you have recreational space uh which is articulated in the Charette master plan that the parks department is working on with the university of wisconsin lacrosse students uh, Mm -hmm. to create kind of a a a great new you know destination park and um and uh and then you have the land management piece too, which, you know, I think the Friends of the Marsh and other groups that have been very, you know, have, have had a leadership role uh, in certain areas and look, have looked at spaces like that, recognize that making sure that we don't have invasive species and that we're doing things that are complementary to the river system and that land management can be very, very important. I think one of, one of the things that Lacrosse has that is so fascinating is that in a lot of cities you can you can go and experience a river edge but a lot of times it's a monolithic it can be old industrial areas that you can't even access but it can also be a very monolithic type of experience like a levee or a a hard edge in lacrosse you have these great areas like Pettybone Beach, you've got the, the levee and the port area, but now you've, got, you've also got this river habitat that kind of juts in that allows you to walk around and actually see what the land might have looked like before development, you know, that you've got... Uh, bird habitat and fish habitat and, you know, all kinds of things going on there. So I had a, a, a foreign exchange student from Seoul, South Korea, stay with me for a year. And I said, what would you like to do in Lacrosse?" And he said, I'd like to put my feet in the Mississippi River. Mm. And, you know, and we have places to do that mm-hmm. in In some cities, it wouldn't be advisable to do that. <laughs> right.
1: you know? These days it wouldn't be advisable, but yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. So that's the answer to the 42 acres Is is it's probably going to be, you know, managed as a recreation, a natural area.
1: Yeah. You know? and, and my reference was to the flooding. So you had shown me the picture from, well, well back then it was actually the mobile oil site, 1965, yeah. that historic flood. We're already talking about sandbagging, I know, for this flood. But but being able to predict, if you will, the the river and the impact, because that was mostly flooded in the 1965 yeah. Flooding, yeah. Um,
0: and, you know, we have to be cognizant that things change over time. So, the work that the engineering department did in Andrew Train and, you know, getting that 300,000 cubic yards of fill put on the site and now the engineering to actually make it flood resilient is really important um, because things are changing, not just in terms of you know, the precipitation data, like high-intensity, high, high short-duration rainstorms that create lots of runoff, but the watersheds are changing, too. You know, we've lost a ton of our dairy farms, and dairy farms had alfalfa, and alfalfa slows down water. Cornfields and soybeans don't slow down water. Mm. And if you look at, like, the study of the Lacrosse River Marsh, you know, from the 1970s, I think it was only... or 2% surface water, and now look at it today, you know, it's like a gigantic lake. So things change over time, and you just have to make sure that you're considering long-term resiliency on these sites.
1: The things you know about alfalfa and corn and and soy and runoff. And (laughs) so what are we going to see here in the next year, in the next like year two, year three? What do you anticipate we're going to see with Riverpoint District?
0: Well, what we'll see this construction season is the completion of that new roadway through the development. Um, One of the developers, uh, MSP, is ways to start construction as early as the fall of this year. Wow. What what is like, what that hinges on is their access to the mains, you know, for hooking the laterals up to the building so that it can be occupied. Mm -hmm. And then also safe and efficient construction access. They have to have a haul road to bring in materials and get the actual building built. So we anticipate that they're probably the first private investment project that will start on the site. And then we'll see... Many more in 2024 provided the same criteria are met, which is safe and efficient construction access. And then the timing of the hooking up of laterals to the mains has to coincide with their expectations on occupying the building. And uh, so uh, I think over the next 24 months, you're going to see major, major changes occur on the site.
1: And where is MSP on the site SP
0: the- is uh, on the south edge of the site, but not up against the marsh area. They're, they're uh, across the new roadway from the marsh uh, on a, uh, a full urban block within the development.
1: Okay. Like south, on the south edge of the development? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, we, we've talked about um, what's the return on investment? Obviously, there's been a lot of resources expended. When you think of the time, money, citizen involvement, you know, just there's been a lot. And and this is not uncommon in, in urban America. I mean, it takes a lot of work to get these sites redeveloped. But one of the really cool things is to think about the return on investment. And the simplest thing that you can think about is tax base rate. Mm-hmm. You're going from a fairly minimum you know, with with oil tanks Mm -hmm. to something that has huge vertical investment and Mm -hmm. probably is going to land somewhere between 200 and 300 million dollars in new tax base. Wow. In terms of what that pays the city annually, you know, 200 million would be about five million dollars in annual tax revenue to the city, which is big. Mm -hmm. The city spends, I think, eight million a year on its capital improvement budget, mm-hmm. so five million in revenues is actually a really big number. Uh, and but there's so much more beyond tax revenue. You know, mm-hmm. when you think about us solving for affordable housing in the community, you know, the fact that this is going to have a variety of different housing styles and, and a strata of different pr- price points that give people opportunity, especially in a tight housing market. There's a huge ROI there. There's also um, an ROI on the, on the whole health, public health side of things, because you're extending Trails, recreation space, uh, bikeability, walkability, public transit, economic security for people, social events like music venues and yoga studios and things where people can get together. And that's important to our physical and mental health. So there's a big ROI relative to health on the site and uh so i've always broken it down into you know social environmental economic and cultural return on investment and the environment environmental return on investment you know is somewhat obvious you know we're taking a an old industrial site that had some pollution and turning it into something that has clean clean water discharge and is putting a a, a larger population on a Urban piece of land where there's already a major investment in infrastructure. We're not building out in on cornfields, you know, mm-hmm. and and sprawl that kind of thing. And we're putting people where they actually have closer access to services, where they're not commuting, with, you know, and and all that. So there there's so much in terms of return on investment that you can think about in a project like this. And I think that is something that. The citizens in the city should feel good about.
1: There's a secondary piece to this, though, which is it's the it's the other ripple effect. Right. So you have construction happening and there. So if it's um, housing, so obviously it's the construction of that tangible housing, they're going to be buying furniture, appliances. There's going to be things going into the businesses that are there. Like there's just purchasing that happens with that construction. But then I also look at it and go, those people are moving to that space from somewhere. And that frees up housing somewhere else. And so it just gets people moving and that's a positive thing for our for our community. Yeah.
0: That's a very good point, Vicki. I there's some aspirational things relative to this development that were envisioned by the citizens and by policymakers over time and it undoubtedly this changes the landscape in lacrosse because it gets people moving it gets people thinking about what's possible here it creates excitement over you know new investment it it potentially has models of a new housing paradigm where you're driving down transportation, food, energy costs, and living in an urban environment and giving people maybe a new sense of what it means to be successful in housing. And then there's the whole skyline thing, you know, the architectural aesthetic of lacrosse, uh, which, you know, we're on the third largest river in the world. So people experience lacrosse both from the Great River Road and Interstate 90, but also the Mississippi River. And this is really going to showcase the, the city and complement all the beautiful things we already have. You know, historic downtown Lacrosse, and and the great investments people like Don Weber have made in the city and, and our, our hospitals and so, so much more. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it has a huge return on investment. Outside of the immediate the, the immediate things that are having, happening on the site,
1: and you took that vision to a whole new level. So thank you. You've been listening to Bizcast Greater Lacrosse. That was Jason Gilman joining me. He's project manager for River Point District. We'll catch you next week.